welcome to Standing at the Edge. I'm Casey Stratton. I'm here in episode seven of season one of this new podcast. The world is moving along at a steady clip. Things are terrifying in the United States. We now have unidentified federal agents without any, literally no badges, no, like they aren't telling protesters who they are or where they're from. Uh, or why they're being detained, uh, just literally taking people off the streets in Portland. Now they're sending forces into Chicago and other American cities. Um, it's just Kansas City. It, now they're saying Detroit. They're uh, basically anyone with a Democratic governor uh, or mayor, excuse me. So it's just, it's nuts. And there's this narrative going around. I keep seeing it in comments like, well, if people wouldn't be rooting and like, or, or what's the word, rioting and looting. And I'm like, that's not what we're seeing. And even if it were, I mean, that's how many social movements in the United States have been categorized by riots? I mean, it's just people get fed up. People have had enough. I'm not necessarily saying it's the best thing to do, but we're seeing videos of people who are literally kneeling on the ground and just being beaten, being grabbed and put in vans and taken away. Nobody knows where under this guise of like damaging federal property, but we're damaging American citizens. They're literally being beaten. You can go online and find video upon video. You can tell I'm very emotional about this. I'm angry about it. I just think, is this the moment? Like the military is being used against us. Federal forces are being used against us. This is the kind of stuff that we watch our own military do in other countries and we watch other countries do to their own citizens and we think, what is going on? At least people who you know are like-minded with me. Like, how is this possible? It's a travesty. And now it's happening inside our country. And we have a leader that has lost his mind or never had one to begin with. And it's just, it's frightening. I'm very, very scared. I don't know what this is going to turn into. I'm usually not that guy, quote unquote, but I'm getting into this whole, like, look at what happened in Nazi Germany. You, It's little cuts, tiny little cuts, one thing after another to the point where one day you've gone too far. And I'm just afraid of that. I really am. And I'm not normally an alarmist, but I'm very, very, very uncomfortable with what's happening. Of course, we still have the coronavirus ravaging the United States population. It's just like we can't do anything right. And I, I sometimes I literally think, did I actually die of the heart attack? And like, this is all some weird sort of dream I'm having or hallucination or I'm laying in a hospital somewhere on life support because I just can't believe any of this is happening. So again, I'm going to keep urging everyone, find comfort where you can, find joy where you can, try to find ways to laugh. We just got to get through this somehow. I am getting called back to work on August 3rd. I'll be working from home, but I will be back working for the YMCA of Greater Grand Rapids. I'm kind of of two minds about it, but I'm just going to try to make the best of it and be innovative. I'm going to be working on virtual programming for middle school and high schoolers. And also there's this workforce uh, program happening with the city of Grand Rapids right now where they're trying to get a thousand uh, young people between the ages of 14 to 24 in job placements and the YMCA currently has five of them but we can't take on more because there's no one to manage it so I will probably be managing that program as well and doing virtual mentorship of the young people who are placed at the YMCA to give them some guidance and get as much as they can out of the experience so they'll work during the week and then they'll have a virtual meeting with me where I will have talked to their supervisors I will kind of know like how they're doing and then talk to them about what are they getting out of this what skills can they translate to other parts of their lives or to a next job or next experience what are their next steps so that they really get as much as they can out of this employment experience it's like it's a six-week program so that'll be fun it'll make uh, it'll be rewarding for me uh to feel like i'm doing something for the next generation uh the 
they've prioritized the zip codes where the most help is needed, including the zip code where I live uh, and worked for many years. And I have many programs in this zip code in it during a normal time, but now everything's suspended. Uh, normally, my programs are my, in majority in schools, and that's obviously not going to be happening. So I'm just going to be creating something virtual, and I'm going to have to be innovative. How do we get, especially high schoolers, to engage in this time outside of the school day? So I'm going to try to make it as open-ended and task-focused as possible so that, like, this is what you need to do. Do it on your own time. I'll connect with you here, there, and other places, but not these, like, every Tuesday for two hours we're going to get on Zoom because I just don't know if that's realistic. Anyway, that's where I am. This week's episode, actually the next three episodes, are going to be my interview, quote-unquote, with Kurt, my husband. What we ended up doing, you'll hear, is that I just set up my iPhone and we were having our usual wine and whiskey time at 7 p.m. and I just hit record and we ended up talking for almost two hours. So instead of trying to break it down uh, and cut stuff out, I'm going to leave as much of it in as I can and just break it up over the next three episodes. So what you're going to be hearing the rest of this episode and the next two is my conversation with Kurt, talking about his identity, a little bit about my identity, talking about how we met and the crazy roller coaster that we've been on over the last two plus years. So let's dig in. Welcome to Standing at the Edge, Kurt. Hi. Hi. <laughs> so, full disclosure, instead of recording this in my studio or on our living room couch, Kurt's got some wine, I've got my whiskey. It's our first drink, though, so we're not going to be crazy. So, this is going to be an informal conversation, just hanging out. So, we're talking about identity in all these episodes. So, how are different ways that you identify yourself? Or what? Or what? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. I identify as, I guess, a mixed race. Um, I'm, I'm black and white. Um, I often identify myself more along the lines of black, when just especially when it comes to certain issues and so on, just because there aren't any issues <laughs> for white people. Um, and then I, I mean, obviously, I also identify as a gay man, so, yeah. Right, so in previous episodes, I've been talking a lot about intersectionality. So, how are some ways that you experience the intersectionality of those different identities? Hmm. Are there any specific incidents you can think of, maybe good or bad? I suppose having both a minority, well, I guess a double minority um, identification, whatever you want to call it, it. Mm, I'm not sure how I want to phrase it, or just how best to phrase this. Um, growing up, and especially as an adult, being a mixed race person, like I was able to really like starting to reflect back on my childhood and my adolescence and things that I didn't necessarily think were I don't know, a problem then like when I look back it's like oh that's like, problematic <clears throat> like you didn't know what you didn't know right 
um, just because I mean I did grow up in a, 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 with the white side of my family, um, even though I was in a pretty diverse area. Like I basically was raised white. Like I didn't have any I got like black family in my life, <clears throat> so I missed out on a lot of that. Um, and it wasn't until I was I became older, like I would say late college years up till now when I really kind of like embraced and really tried to uh, just learn and connect to my black self um, and I that ties in with being gay because I mean I I knew I was gay from a very very young age um, I came out when I was 14 and as a part of that, you know, I start, you start learning, I guess, gay history, all the things that you don't learn because you're not going to learn any of that in school. Like, no one's going to tell you about the Stonewall riots and, you know, things like that. So I was able to embrace and, you know, connect with, you know, like the, the gayness of myself and like history early and that has kind of helped me along like my journey in connecting with my blackness because you have a roadmap for that right that's what's really interesting about our age difference because i didn't have access to anything really gay related and i certainly wasn't going to go to the library at school or, or even in town and check it out because i would be exposed so i didn't and i came out at 16 but I didn't have access to gay history because one, it wasn't really, there were very few resources. Um, I've just now like been listening to the Making Gay History podcast over the last year, and it's been really informative. A lot of it I learned just because I moved to Los Angeles in 1995, so I was around a lot of older gay men, finally, because I lived in West Hollywood, so I was finally around a lot of gay people, which was one of the things I was so excited about when I moved to LA, but it was also one of the things that was one of the most disappointing times of my life because being from the suburbs here in Grand Rapids, I, it was a very conservative place. And so I didn't know any other gay people my age. And then I moved to LA and I get to know all these gay people, but then I don't fit in. I didn't have washboard abs and I didn't like Cher at the time. Like, you know, I, as a musician, like I wasn't like, oh my God, Cher or Judy Garland or anything like that. I was like, I used to always say, no, I'm a Tori Amos Bjork gay. So when I finally moved to an area of LA called Silver Lake, everybody had like tattoos and piercings that I fit in much better because it's another gay neighborhood, but it's much more alternative. So it's interesting to me because like you had the internet. So you had all this information right at your fingertips where I did not have that experience at all because I came out in 1992. So things were very different then. And it's even with the age difference, we still had a similar experience. Sure. I say this just because maybe it was because it was so much more accessible you know I, I had the internet so I obviously saw lots of gay porn mm -hmm. like what, what little 14 year old boy wouldn't like um, but then that was also like a big um, thing with like, like body image and like kind of what you're talking about like I didn't know well in high school I was really skinny and whatnot but I still didn't have like a six-pack I wasn't you know tall and blonde which was all of the gay 
porn stars that I was seeing. And of course, that also informed like my early sex life because I thought, you know, you had to do all these flips and tricks when it came to sex. Right. A lot of young people have that. They think pornography is real <clears throat> sex and it's not. Not at all. <laughs> I, I was listening to something on NPR about that recently. And, I, and again, that's something I did not have because I didn't really have access to that. And like pornography was super expensive when I was a kid and I didn't, I was not about to go and do all that. Mm -hmm. So I was like an adult before I ever saw anything like that. But you also didn't have to go back through and delete your search history. Right. <laughs> well, eventually when you're, when I was in my <clears throat> early twenties relationships and people were jealous, then yes. But so I do have that experience, but it was later on as an adult in my twenties. Yeah. I got very good at figuring all that stuff out. Right. I could just say all this because my mom's not going to ever listen to that. I don't know. I share it on Facebook. She won't. If she knows you're in it, she might. Nah. Anyway, um, so yeah, speaking of that, I'm just assuming, I don't know if we've ever actually talked about this, that your mom didn't probably didn't have a lot of gay people in her life or experience with that. So what was that like for you and maybe for her as far as you know? Because your mom is way more conservative than my mom. Yeah, um, I mean, the only gay person that I knew, like, growing up, like, as a child was, I called her my aunt because, I mean, she was my then stepfather's sister, so, I mean, she was, she was my aunt, um, and I was young enough that, of course, you know, why would it matter, whatever, it doesn't, mm -hmm. anyway, um, was my aunt, but it was also one of those things, like, no one ever talked about it, right. so, like, I knew was she, she white? yes, okay. I knew she didn't like men. I didn't necessarily know she liked women, but like, I just, you know, especially as a gay person myself, and like, even though I was so young, like, you know something is different. And then it was a little bit later on, um, like when I was in high school, which is kind of after my mom had, like that marriage had ended, but kind of still stayed in touch with um, my aunt, like my mom did, and I guess it was, what did she ask? She was dating this woman who was from France, um, and I was taking French in high school, so she asked me, like, how do I say, you know, these things, because I want to be able to say them in her, like, her language, and I was like, it's not, it was nice to have, like, I guess the confirmation validation that yeah we never actually said it but now like we have this there's like I guess there was a connection later in life if that makes sense mm -hmm. and then I, somewhere uh, one of the places my mom worked her boss was gay a gay man um, so I got to interact with him and I want to say that was, like, my late high school early. So you were already out. Yeah, like, I was already out. Like, my mom knew and everything. So those were really the only, like, two gay people that I knew, like, growing up. Um, so do you think it was difficult for your mom, or was it something that she accepted pretty easily? Well, so I... I was very dramatic in my coming out. No. <laughs> You're kidding. I, <laughs> I, 
Jesus. just thinking about it, I'm like, oh my God, why did I do that? Do I know this story? I'm not sure I ever told the whole I'm sure thing. I forgot if I ever did know. Um, so I was you know, 14. I, I think in English class at the time, we were reading Romeo and Juliet. And then on my own, I was reading like different like books and stuff. And I just remember feeling and thinking like, oh my God, like, am I ever going to have like the type of love and relationships that I'm reading about? And I wrote this like three page front and back. So, you know, six pages worth of ramblings because I'm 14 and that's what you do just literally talking about how I mean I've been writing songs for three years by then so I'm just gonna say but anyway anyway <laughs> this is not about you right now it's a conversation no it's me telling a story oh I see okay go on um I lost my train of thought what was you I wrote a letter <laughs> yes, rambling I didn't like address it to anybody or anything okay so let me set the scene a little I was in my bedroom it was like maybe early evening six seven o'clock or so because in at that time it was just my mom and I like living together like no siblings or anything um so like and I had everything I needed in my room like I had tv and all that stuff so I just spent the majority of my time in my room um and after I like finished it I can't remember exactly but I know I finished it like I I'm never going to find a Juliet because I need a, like, I want a Romeo or something along those lines. And I took all of the pages and threw them outside my door and shut my door. (laughs) And. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's one way to do it. Yeah. So, of course, my mom sees it and thinks that I left it for her. I mean, I guess, obviously, hindsight 2020. You were. I was. In the moment that wasn't necessarily my intention. Like, so I don't, what was it? I don't know. I was 14, being dramatic. Sure. Trying to figure out these feelings, and I didn't know what to do with it. So that's what I did. Um, so then, like, a little bit later that night, you know, she calls me into her room, because it, like, it was, uh, like, across the hall. And she's like, well, I found this, like, that you left for me. He's like, well, I didn't leave it for you. Like, you know, all snotty attitude teenager like what are you talking about mom um she's like is there something you want to tell me so I did I was like well yeah I'm gay and so her a slight paraphrasing of her words it was I'm not happy about it but you're my son and I'll always love you that tracks so at that time I was very thankful like for that reaction because I really didn't know what to expect like mm-hmm. was she gonna kick me out like what I just didn't know so I was like you know what I'll take it right like, it's like a 70-30 split kind of right situation um I mean she's definitely come a long way since then oh definitely um but yeah, that was that was my, and at that time I'd also, I had came out to, basically I was out at school and like in my, my life, you know, like my all my friends knew like pretty much everyone at, we were having cat issues um, <laughs> as usual. Cats much, are walking all over the place. Everyone knew at school, 
so I mean, at that point, it was really only a matter of time before you know it sank into like my home life as well. So that makes sense. I think my main issue with people was again it was 1992, so everybody thought I was going to get AIDS. That was a lot of the concern I would get. Like, I support who you are, but I'm afraid for you. I can imagine being me. I do remember my mom saying something about, like, she was more afraid of, like, what would happen to me, like, you know, getting beaten or killed in all these different things. Because, I mean, this was end of the 90s. So I want to say I was just going, I had just started high school, so it was 2000. Mm-hmm. 2000, 2001, something like that. Mm-hmm. So we had just kind of come out of the AIDS crisis, you know, of the 90s. There, you know, Matthew Shepard had happened. Like all these, you would constantly be hearing about all these mm-hmm. um, gay bashings. And like that was what it was back then. And she was just, she was afraid that would happen to me. Thankfully, even though we lived in at that time I guess it wasn't like the most diverse place um it was still pretty liberal especially like the school system thankfully like I had two three plus lesbian teachers they weren't necessarily out but everybody knew Mm -hmm. um and one of them was like my favorite teacher and I always went to her for advice so that was nice. This must be why you like lesbians so much. I never thought about that. Your aunt and then your favorite teacher. Not that there's any reason not to like lesbians, but you have a particular <laughs> love of lesbian women. Lesbians are awesome. Yes, I agree with you. But again, like, in my time, there was still this, like, big divide. I mean... Now we're talking LGBTQ+. Back then it was like LG and being like, why do we have to be allies for each other when you like women and we like men and we really don't have much in common? Uh, Fortunately for me, when I lived in LA, I had a ton of lesbian friends. My roommate was a lesbian. My manager was a lesbian. So I got to know a lot of lesbians really well. But politically, it was still really this huge, like, why do we all have to be swimming in the same pool kind of situation? And then, especially with trans, when that became a thing... I knew a lot of gay white men, let's say, specifically, that were like, I don't understand why I'm supposed to be supporting this community because we didn't have the language at the time, but it was like gender identity and sexual orientation are completely different things. So really, being lumped together as a group, it's a, it makes sense for allyship and for political pressure and things like that, but I think there's it's such a different experience. And like we've talked about this, at one of my jobs, I used to get the, you know, I was the one everybody called whenever there was an issue that was mm-hmm. LGBT at all. And I was like, okay, one, that's tokenism because you're calling me because I'm the only gay person who works here in a position of power or influence. And two, I don't know everything. I'm not the director of diversity and inclusion. I direct programs. So if you're calling me about a young student who is identifying as trans, I don't necessarily have the experience or the understanding of that. Mm -hmm. I might have the language or the training, but I'm like, it's tokenism to assume that I'm going to know what it's like to be trans. Because again, we all have our own way of experiencing the world, and so as a gay man, I'm not gonna know what it's like to be trans, because I'm not. So I certainly don't know what it's like to be 11 years old and trans, you know? Like, I can empathize and I can guess, but I was just like having to throw out like, well, I guess 
you know, we will honor wherever the student is in his identity right now. Right now he's identifying as male, so we will call him by his name or whatever, but then the school that he went to would not do that because they said they would only allow biological birth certificate sex at school. So this poor child is at school being called a dead name, a female name, and then coming to us after school and having being able to be allowed to be male and present as male and be referred to as male. But he would go home anytime he had to go to the bathroom because we had no single stall bathrooms. So it became this huge issue Anyway, that's a, a, going around the bend a lot. But yeah, I think it's really interesting. So I'm going to switch gears a little bit. So I've been reading a lot on Twitter, especially um, right now, especially black males saying, you don't get to crop out my gayness for my blackness. You're not black before you're gay. You're not gay before you're black. I'm a black gay male, the end. All those things exist at the same time. So I'm curious about your experience with that and if you've ever felt like you had to like have one identity carry more weight than the other. And again, knowing that you grew up in a white family, that was probably different for you. Right. Like I said earlier, I really didn't... I'd, I'd always identified as, you know, mixed, or I would say, like, oh, yeah, I'm black and white, or, you know, something like that. Um, but it wasn't until... Maybe, honestly, un like, until I moved to Grand Rapids, which was in 2015. Which is ironic, I'm just going to jump in, because you come from Metro Detroit area. So you would think that race would have impacted you there, but you were in the suburbs. I was in the suburbs. Um, so yeah, it wasn't until I got to Grand Rapids where, I guess, like, race actually started mattering. Because everywhere I'd lived before, you know, even, you know, in college, like I went to Central Michigan University, which is in the middle of basically nowhere, Michigan, it, like literally middle, mm -hmm. it's in Mount Pleasant, which is small town surrounded by farms and like conservative. But you know, as most college and universities are, they're their own like microcosm of society. So I didn't need to leave campus much so and I didn't so my experience at least surrounding like being gay and or being mixed or black was just fine like I had no issues and I didn't necessarily I wouldn't say I didn't have issues I had issues rather when I moved to Grand Rapids but it wasn't until then that I really started to notice like I guess like some of the microaggressions like I mm. specifically the, uh, let me back up just a moment and I started because that's also when I started to really like realize I guess because you know I was what in my late 20s at the time and hadn't how old was I 27 um so yeah I hadn't like I like explored what being black meant to me so like I was just kind of like getting into that space like really digging into it and not just, I guess, you know, like kind of surface level like I had been doing before. Cause I really wanted to figure out like what does being black mean to me? Like, how does that affect my life? 
so then that's when I really started to notice again like all those little microaggressions and then once I started noticing them happening in real time that was when I could also look back and say oh my gosh I've been experiencing all of this my entire life I just didn't know it because again when I was six seven eight whatever we there was no term for microaggressions right um it's just you know racism or discrimination so on so on um and it was or what what did we say like it was the non-overt or like covert racism. racism so i should just clarify for people who might not know a microaggression is something that seems benign maybe an intention but the way it's perceived kind of eats at you i think we've actually talked about this in previous episodes with things i've experienced i did talk about it because i was saying how the, i there have been people who said things to me like i like you because you're gay but you're not like that kind of gay and it's like what that's that problematic mean? to say to me so yeah you were experiencing that a lot but you didn't the language didn't exist i mean so much of the language we have now just didn't exist right period and like now that i i had the tools to recognize it and also the language, like language goes a long way for making a difference. Uh, so like now that we, I had the language and the tools to recognize what was happening, that's when I like really like dove into it. Cause like the one experience that just really sticks out in my mind is I used to work for um, Verizon, like in sales, like phone sales. And this was here in Grand Rapids. Well. Byron Center is where the store was, so sure. that's a little bit different than Grand Rapids, but... It's a suburb again, just... Yes. Yeah. Most people listening are not from Grand Rapids. I was going to explain that. Okay, okay. So, yes, Byron Center, it's a suburb. Mostly, I would say, middle to upper class white people. Yes. Um. So this older woman, like, well, okay. When I say older, I... <laughs> my age she was at that time she was probably like (laughs) mid 40s to like early 50s (laughs) go on please to me being you know 27 28 she was older (laughs) sure anyway um we were I, i was like finishing up whatever it was that she wanted and she's like oh where are you from and i was like oh here we go and I said, oh, well, originally I moved here from uh, Mount Pleasant, but I grew up in Metro Detroit, like in the suburbs. She's like, oh, I mean, like, where did you come from? I said, Detroit. She's like, oh, you know what I mean? Like, where were you born? I was like, well, technically I was born in Auburn Hills, which is a suburb of Detroit. And she's like, but you're not like, it's like you're 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 a little darker. Mm-hmm. Like where do where, like where? So you can't be from here. Mm-hmm. Yes, you can. <laughs> and I looked. I just looked at her, and I was I like one. I just I couldn't believe I had to have this conversation. Mm-hmm. I'm like I am a 27 year old man. Like I should not have to explain my existence to this old white lady. Mm-hmm. But of course, like if. I had, like, if this was, like, an interaction I had had on the street, things would have been much different. You were at work. I was at work. I had to be cordial. Mm-hmm. So I just explained nicely that my mother is white, my father was black, then came me. 
and like that was pretty much the end of that conversation and both Americans right (laughs) and she just seemed so uh, I don't know surprised (laughs) that someone with darker skin could have possibly been born and raised in Michigan in the US and like what world are you living in but yeah and it was also like that experience and like a couple other similar ones that really made me realize how many times I had been asked the same thing ever since I was a child. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I start I t- started turning it into a joke and you know things like that. But again, like once I got to be older and really thinking about it, I was like, why am I like placating right. these white people? Right. <laughs> like prancing around their sensitivities and ignorance. I don't have to. It's not my job. Right. I can empathize with that, like, getting out ahead of being gay, trying to normalize it for people to make them more comfortable so that I can get some of the work done ahead of time or diffuse it so they can't possibly say something negative to me. Like, I put them in a position of, like, trying to normalize it, but you can see it over people's faces. And, like, we've talked about this, and I have i don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast yet, but ever since we got married, I am hyper-aware every time I say my husband that I'm outing myself. And I see some people's eyes go wide, especially some of the teenagers I work with. They're like, wait, what? Oh, 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 okay, 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 yeah. And it's like they're like, you can watch them process it, like, huh? What do you mean, husband? Oh, you're gay. Oh, I'm uncomfortable. Oh, now I'm going to pretend I'm fine with it. And it's, maybe they are fine with it, but they're like, it throws them for a curve, especially because I work primarily with kids of color where there's still a lot of stigma and taboo where either you don't talk about it at all or it's something that it's just not, it's not cool to be really open about. So that's what's interesting for me, but I know that feeling of like trying to get out ahead of something or like you experience a microaggression and you laugh it off. You have your like canned lines ready to go. So it's interesting. Yep. Yeah. Something, one of the jokes, <laughs> it's, can I, is it inappropriate? It's probably, it is it's inappropriate. Fine. It's fine. Um, <laughs> so something that I used to say in, when I was in college, I stopped saying it after because I realized like that's problematic and not how I want to be known. Mm-hmm. Um, is I would, kind of like you were saying, like getting out in front of it, I would just say like, yes, I'm half white, half black, and the black half is the bottom half. Right. You've said that before. Yes. <laughs> and just a stereotype. I know, which, like, that's why I stopped saying it, because I'm like, now I'm just feeding into what the stereotype is, I'm turning myself into this joke, and I'm not a joke, I am not a stereotype, like, I'm a person. Mm Mm-hmm. I hope you got from that that we have a really great connection and we always love to have these deep conversations we can really go places and really just have an, a nice dialogue with one another and it's fun and it's de- there's depth to it and we just both have a lot to say luckily we agree on most things so we both appreciate that we're with someone who can share a common vision 
for what equity looks like and justice in the United States. So we're gonna keep pushing toward that. I want you all to stay safe. I want you all to be washing your hands. Please wear masks if you're in the United States or any other country where that's still important, especially in other countries where people actually do it. So yeah, we'll get through this. We're gonna keep getting through it. We're gonna keep going. I'm gonna keep going. I want you to keep going and I will see you, talk to you next week.